Cross oh. comes in. Fight with the header. And here comes Whitehead. It's gold for Great Britain. Hello and welcome back to Track and Ball Podcast with myself, Ellen White. I'm Richard Whitehead. Um, I'm especially excited uh, to chat to our guest today because he is a formal footballer and also a striker. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> he signed his first professional contract uh, with Ipswich Town and then made the move to Premier League to play for the likes of Charlton, Tottenham, Sunderland and Villa. Wait a minute, um, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Tottenham. <laughs> Big Tottenham fan, Darren. Oh, Big God. Tottenham fan. <laughs> he made his international debut for England in 2006, going on to make 13 appearances, scoring four goals. He's now a talk, sto- talk sport presenter. We're looking forward to chatting all about his career and lots more. Today's guest is Darren Bent. How you going, mate? You right? before, you, before you get into the questions, Darren, obviously, like you just found out, I'm a big Spurs fan. When you were at Spurs, you were the likes of, obviously, Robbie Keane, Defoe, the main man, De Berbatov. How do you, how do you rate yourself amongst those kind of strikers? Uh, I mean, it's difficult, I think, when I first got Come on, there, man. You... Come on. Build yourself up, man. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of natural goal scorers, you'd have to say probably myself and Defoe would probably be the most natural out of the four. Um, but then Berbatov and Keane were so like, intelligent and clever in the way they played and they were telepathic them too so trying to break, break that combination was always going to be difficult Mate and uh, when you look at the, the kind of standard of, of player at the Spurs at the moment you can't look past somebody like the leader that is Harry Kane and they assist the numbers that he's putting up at the moment what are your thoughts about obviously where Spurs are at the moment and Harry Kane and his kind of performances this year? Um, I mean, Spurs, you have to say, have probably had a bit of an indifferent season. Um, at times, people talk about them potentially winning the league. Um, got some great, great players. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> but in, in, in terms of Harry Kane, for me, he's arguably one of the, the best top three centre-forwards in the world football. You can't get anybody's fact. team, wouldn't it? Getting anybody's team. He'd probably get in anyone's team, but probably other than, I'd say... By Munich because I think they've probably got the best one in, in yeah. Lewandowski. Yeah. But Harry Kane, other than that, is, is I think he's better than Benzema. He's he's better than Suarez. I think he honestly he's, he's that good. And I think it's going to be a real challenge this summer because if Spurs were to pick up no trophies this season, including the League Cup, I think there's a strong possibility that he goes because someone of that quality has got to be playing in the Champions League unless obviously mm-hmm. Spurs win the Europa and get themselves mm-hmm. in it that way. Yeah. Definitely. I'm going to get told off, mate, because I'm not going to ask too many uh, Tottenham yeah, can you questions. Stop talking about Tottenham again? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Let's jump straight into your your career, early career. I read whilst doing research. Um, you obviously, joined Ipswich Town in '98, age 14. But after considering potentially a career in athletics, is that right? Yeah, I did. I did long jump for England um, to quite a good level. And as I was obviously doing well at football, progressing in, in Ipswich Town's academy. I was obviously doing that on my side and it just got to a point where I couldn't do both. Um, and I just felt like football like football was my passion. I loved it. I loved long jump and athletics and I still do. Um, but football was just my life at the time. And it was just a case of, I felt that was the right, what I wanted to do and what I thought I had a better opportunity of doing and, and progressing in. And obviously it, it turned out to be the right decision. But as I said, it was, it was a difficult decision, but one that I'm, I'm happy that I made. Yeah, I think I think it's important, isn't it, that you you follow your your passions. We've had Adam, Adam Jamili on the show, and he talked about the opposite way, where he was obviously Chelsea, and then he went to um, I think was it Dagenham and Redbridge, 
And then he chose to go into athletics. So I think it's really important to follow your passion, but also keep those options open, right? It is. It's, it's really important. And it, it even got to a point where I was doing the athletics and even at school, I wasn't really allowed to play because of the Ipswich Town, obviously, contract situation and me being in their academy. I couldn't even play certain games for the school. So it would just get into a real kind of like head-on collision where, well, if I can't play football for the school, I then can't go and do long jump because obviously if I land awkwardly and do something to my legs, that, then that's it. So, but as I said, I, I made the right decision and if you sound brilliant about it, obviously now I'd sit back and say, well, 100% made the right the right decision. And we want to talk about that that kind of first professional contract. Um, within athletics, we have like, funding and sponsorship. Uh, what's it like um, in that, that process to get your first contract? I think that was in in 2001 and who was with you around that, that time supporting you in that process to kind of sign in that contract and how long was it was it a quite a lengthy contract or? yeah it was it was quite a strange one for me because I, I got to Ipswich Town at 14 years old which is quite late for for getting to an academy obviously I played the first couple of seasons and then the, the original contract that I've been offered was it was a uh, I think it was a one-year YTS and a two-year pro so it was obviously you, you go in the building for a year you obviously kind of learn learn the ropes, clean a few boots, obviously help, help the kit man out and all that. Then once you've got through that, then you, you sign your two-year pro. And because my, my rate of progression was was really, really quick, I had my, obviously it was my mum and dad that were around me, so I, I talked to my dad about pretty much everything. And after I had had that first season, I'd done that well. I, think I won the golden boot in the reserves um, at nice. age 16, 16, 16 or 17. Um, and my progression was rapid. So in the end, I, could, I didn't do any YTS at all. I ended up just signing like a four or five year contract professional and training with the first team at, at, at 16 because That's later cool. on in the year, I travelled with the, the first team and I made my debut in pre-season at 16 and scored my first goal at 17. So I just think that the whole YTS got kind of wiped out and it was a whirlwind. When I, when I think about yeah. it now, it was one of them. I never really got the opportunity at that time to kind of sit back and go, Whew, right <laughs> on to the next one it, it, it just yeah. kept progressing it just kept moving like that it was, it was so quick and when you first signed that contract you know you hear about footballers going out being a bit crazy buying some cars watches like what was the first thing that you brought after you signed that contract it's actually funny right because in, in Ipswich Town like, it's, it's not a big it's not the biggest town but I remember when I was I, I was kind of in the youth team I'd, I'd walk past this designer shop and they sold like loads of brand stuff and there was a Stone Island jacket that yeah. I really wanted I absolutely loved it and I said you know what when I get professional I'm buying this jacket so when I signed the contract I went back to the shop and I was like oh I need that jacket. And they were like, oh, sorry, we've only got a medium. I went, I don't care. And it didn't even... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't even stop me. The, the sleeves were too short. But because I was so set on getting yeah. this jacket, that I bought the jacket anyway. Like, because I so wanted it that badly. Yeah. Have you still got it? That I, I gave it to to someone that it fit. But it was, <laughs> it, it, it was one of them where I, just, I, did, I had to have this jacket because I'd wanted it for so long that once I could afford it, I went and bought it. That's so funny. When you were, when you were Ipswich, you obviously played for Ipswich uh, a lot, with over 100 appearances, um, and that's a club really close to your heart. What kind of lessons did you learn at that stage of your career that kind of moulded you into the professional that you you were in in your later later part of your career? I, I mean, they were, they were always big on kind of dedication. I think that that's, that's was the, the big message in that. Obviously, they, they couldn't really control what happened once I left the, the, the building, the training ground. So it was all well and good 
me training really well, eating really well while I was there. But they really put big emphasis on that. You spend a lot of time away from that environment. So it was about looking after yourself, make sure when you're back at your house, your nutrition was right. You get enough rest. You watch as many football games, which I think not too many young kids nowadays do enough of, I don't think, which is the basics, which is watch football matches. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which is sit there and watch games. Watch so their we, position we, and stuff, yeah. And exactly. It, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things, obviously, back then, which was big, and it was kind of a kind of a breakthrough, but it, they don't do it anymore. Sky did player cam. So yeah, I used to do yeah. a lot yeah, of like, that, watching yeah. player cam, whatever game was on. I didn't care what kind of standard it was. If player cam was on, I'd put it on the centre forward just to kind of get a gauge what they did. So it was, it was always about being professional, being dedicated, make sure you look after yourself. And whenever you were outside of that environment, you're representing Ipswich Town Football Club. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you, you get yourself into trouble outside and you're not on, obviously, football terms. You're still representing our, as us as a family, Ipswich Town. So they were always really big on that as well. And that always stuck with me throughout my whole whole career. And what what who was who were the players that you were watching at that time to kind of analyse, to say, actually, if I was going to uh, mirror this player in my career, who were, who were they at that time? Well, being an Arsenal fan, which is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you can't <have> mad. <laughs> this, is, this is a weird dynamic. I'm a West Ham fan, a Tottenham fan and an Arsenal fan. It's, yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic, that. But, I, mean, I mean, I watched a lot of Ian Wright. Obviously, Ian Wright was my absolute yeah. hero. So I watched a lot of his games. Andy Cole um, yeah. was another one as well. So I'd say Ian Wright, probably majority. I mean, I'd watch any time the game was on, I would always watch who the centre forward was. But if you talk about my actual hero, who I studied like religiously, yeah. was, was always Ian Wright. Yeah. Because I, um, I I watched um, some of your some of your goals on, on YouTube before this interview. And it's it, it's funny because a lot of your movement and your, your poacher's instincts are very much like Ian's as well, aren't they? So you can tell that obviously you really studied kind of being on the front foot after that, after the keepers made that save to, to obviously follow into it the ball in if there's any rebound opportunities. Yeah, 100%. And, and to be fair, probably Ellen would tell you this as well because she's a centre forward as well, is that I think there's I think there's a bit of a difference between a like a, a natural goal scorer and someone that scores a lot of goals because with a natural goal scorer, like an Ian Wright, and I said, as Ellen will know, you kind of, you, it's that instinct, you kind of smell it. Like you think, right, something might just happen here. So let me just take an opportunity. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't happen. But the one time that it does happen, you're there and people will say it's only a tapping. But it's not really a yeah. tapping because the, the process that goes on in your mind beforehand, where you've got to anticipate someone making a certain move, where they're going to pull the ball back to, someone might miss hit the shot. There's so many different things. And and when I look at people like Ian Wright, natural goal scorer, uh, Robbie Fowler, Andy Cole, these guys were like natural, natural goal scorers. So it was it was always my, my kind of intention that because I've been watching Ian Wright from such a young age and really studying what he does, by the time I'd got to a decent standard of football, it was kind of ingrained in me already. So I started thinking quite strange things about the game where, oh, this might happen, that might happen. And sometimes you, it never happens. But look, as I said, yeah. the ninth, the, the tenth time that it does happen, you're ready for it Got and it. you get your rewards from it. Yeah, there's That's so it. many other mm. things that can happen in a game, isn't it? It's, it's mm. almost like thinking two, three, four, even five moves ahead of what's actually going to happen. And did yeah. you practice a lot of that in training? Like, because you talk about a lot of strikers doing that. Like, you know, you set, you finish. It's it's quite. But when when do strikers really ever get those type of finishes? Did you ever do any finishes that were a bit awkward? Much more like game specific, like realistic to an actual match. 
Well, as I started to get older in my career, um, and I, obviously I, I understood how important your finishing was because mm. when, when at football, certain football clubs, you know what it's like, you finish training and the, mm. the coach will put on a, a finishing session or a shooting session and you'd have midfielders getting involved, yeah. defenders getting involved. Where I got to a point when they started doing that, I would go, no, I, I don't, I'm not doing this anymore. So I, I tended to go in, have my lunch and go back out in the afternoon, get a youth mm. team goalkeeper. And that's when I'd start doing the, the, the real specific yeah. stuff because when, you, when you're doing finishing sessions, it's about repetition. So mm. you, you want to go like three or four quick shots and then you take a, like a, a break for 15 seconds. Then you go again, awkward finishes on your left, on your right, maybe ahead. But when you're doing shooting sessions where you're, you're having a one shot every minute and a half, you're getting absolutely nothing out of it. Yeah. So mm. I, I tended to go and get my own youth team goalkeeper. We'd go to a completely separate part and start doing our own stuff. And I think that's important because finishes in an art, it's an art, it's a skill. Mm. And, it, and it only gets better by doing repetition and really working on it. You can't do, you can't do shots at the every other, maybe every other day with defenders and midfielders in where you're hitting shots from the edge of the area. As Ellen said, where you roll it to the coach, he sets <laughs> yeah. it and you yeah. shoot. I, I, used to, I, I used to say, I can't do this anymore. What, what, I'm not getting absolutely nothing out of it. I don't yeah. think I ever scored one single goal in my whole career well, I rolled it to someone in the edge of the box. They set it <laughs> and I finished it off. Ever. Exactly, exactly, hundred percent. There's some good, real good messages in in that as well for those young young uh, young uh, footballers, whether whether they're in uh, in the twilight of their career or they're just starting around that repetition, but also doing things specific, specific to what your game is and it's specific to what your sport is. Now, we want to move on now down to when you obviously moved from Ipswich towards Charlton. Mm. And obviously, from Championship to uh, to Premier League, I think you got relegated at that stage, didn't you? With with um, yeah. with Ipswich, and was that was that transition to Charlton because of the the Premier League, and you want to see your um, your career press uh, progress in that way? Yeah, it was kind of like so. We, we got we got relegated at Ipswich a couple of years before, like we'd finished fifth the first season, then we got relegated the second season. But I played, I think, three or four seasons in the Championship. And I, I was seeing other strikers from the championship who were in my under-21s, so like Colton mm. Cole, Dean Ashton, quite a few making the transition up yeah. to the Premier League. And I remember thinking, like, I know in myself I'm as good as these players, but they're getting mm. the opportunity in the Premier League. So when we lost to West Ham twice in the, se- the semi-finals of the playoffs, two years in a row... <laughs> I, 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 I didn't want to bring that up. I, I yeah. actually had that as notes, but I was like, I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we got to a point, I was like, do you know what? I said to the manager who was Joe Royal at the time, I said, I, I need to make the step up now. Like, I've, we've tried to do it, it's not worked. Yeah. I need to go to the Premier League. So I had a conversation with Alan Kirbishley, who, who kind of said to me, listen, this is the perfect stepping stone for you. You're going to play here. You're going to, there's going to be opportunities for you to score goals. So for me, it was a perfect It was a perfect landing place. So after I'd had the conversation with Alan Kirbishley, made the move it all just kind of fit into place and it, it just felt comfortable mm. because the size the size of the club as well are kind of similar you'd probably say Ipswich Town is maybe a little bit bigger because like the European history winning the Champions League is probably a little bit bigger than Charlton at the time so I went you know what it's the perfect it's the perfect kind of transition for me and it worked out really well and you obviously went to Charlton and had like a ridiculous start as well like mm. August player of the month first four appearances, scoring, like, was that kind of, did you put a lot of work in that pre-season um, to essentially start that Premier League season flying? Yeah, I mean, I, I worked, but the, the, I worked really, really hard uh, that pre-season. Probably the three season, pre-seasons before that, I worked really, really hard. Mm. But, th- but that one in the, 
where I was leading up to the Premier League, my first Premier League campaign, that proper Premier League campaign. Yeah, I did so much work. Yeah. I was running every day. I was I was get, getting my friend who was a goalkeeper out into the park, practicing, finishing, working on my touch. I pretty much done everything in in a in like a a, a, a park effectively, yeah. so that when it came to day one, I was ready. I didn't want to use preseason as a opportunity to get ready. I wanted to be fit before preseason started. So day one, I went into the building and people go bloody hell, like he, he's ready to go. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I, I I always felt like preseason. It wasn't a time to get yourself fit. You had to be fit yeah. day one of preseason. So that by the time you came to the first game of the season, you was razor sharp. Mm-hmm. Did you did you did you play with any well any of your teammates that that kind of you went in that first day and you went? <laughs> I know what you're say. Some of these guys, some of these guys have got some work to do. <laughs> you don't need the, to the, name the, them all. You can name one or two. <laughs> you know what? The, the, there was there was a few. There was a few that were kind of because they were established Premier League players. Yeah. They probably didn't look at it that preseason. They 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 use preseason mm. um, to get fit. Um, so that you'd have preseason for four weeks. They'd use them four weeks to get fit then because they'd been playing the Premier League for a number of years. But the ones that were hungry, like myself, when we got into preseason day one, was really at it. Do you know what I mean? Really at it. And I always found that preseason, like I know some some centre forwards don't really put a lot of emphasis in, and players in general, to be fair, put a lot of emphasis into preseason. I did. Because I always wanted to hit the back of the net early. Because mm. I always felt that was important to get that again repetition. Because I don't care if I was playing against I don't know Dagenham or Redbridge, it don't really matter if I'm hitting the net consistently. It's still it, the transition's still the same as if I'm playing mm. against Premier League. I'm still going to get in confidence, the same positions, yeah. mm. and it's confidence. So when that that, mm. that opportunity does come to me, I've already hit the back of the net. So I'm I'm, I'm ready ready for it. So I always found that was important as well. Yeah, me and Rich have actually spoken a lot about like, like those standards, like having your standards so high, no matter who you're playing, facing against, um, to have that professionalism, to, to put everything you've got into each kind of game or whatever you're doing. Um, because ultimately, when you do play against the best, you've already kind of gone through the stages of, of the professionalism, the standards that you've already raised. It, it, exactly. That, and that's such a good point, because... When that's why I was always a player that liked to play mm. in the FA Cup and the League Cup against I know it's like lesser teams because you want to score goals that, that, and that's the bottom line as a centre forward you play against a lesser team you're going to have more of the ball you're going to create more opportunities and this is a chance to really kind of pad the stats get, get the goals in yeah, yeah. So, so and when you play against the top teams you might only get one or two opportunities mm. so you need to be you're not going to get two, three, four so if you've already kind of defi- like kind of fine-hearted what you're doing is in scoring the goal when that opportunity comes against the top teams, you're like, well, I better take this. But because you've already done it, it's just, you don't even have to think about it. It's an instinct yeah. and you just do it naturally. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's, we're going to go to Tottenham. I know Rich has loads more questions about Spurs, but I'll jump first in. <laughs> um, is it, did, did West Ham put a bid in for you? But you, Did you choose kind of Tottenham over West Ham? Again, we're, we're going back to West Ham Tottenham. Come on. <laughs> Wait a as if, as if, as if West yeah. Ham. We would have, we would have loved you. We would have had you with open arms at West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is true because obviously we'd gone. Charlton had gone down. Kerbisley was in mm. charge of West Ham, and he phoned me at the end of that season and said, "Listen, I want you to come to West Ham." Um, I went, I went on holiday. I came back early. I went straight to Upton Park from the airport. Um, I did look around, and I was all set to sign. Mm. But for whatever reason, it's something that just didn't fit. Now, it wasn't the manager because the manager was obviously Alan Kermis, who I had a great relationship with. I think it was the owner at the time. And I can't remember what his name was. It was a small, bald-headed guy. Um, 
was it, it wasn't Magnuson. It was that Magnus. I can't remember what his, his name was, but he kind of put me off. And right. that's why I didn't, that, that was the only reason I didn't sign for West Ham. Um, and I ended up leaving there. And the following day, I did my medical and signed for Spurs. So I was all set to set, sign for West Ham, but in the end, they opted to sign for Spurs. It's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? That are those little things um, leave that lasting impression. And they're not around the football, are they? So it's more around the kind of how, the feeling of the environment, maybe players that kind of might coerce you to that club. I've heard like stories of obviously players saying you want to come and play in this environment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Have you ever had that in your career? And and was that one of the reasons why you went to Spurs? And uh, I've had it a little bit before, but I mean the, the reason I went to Spurs was they finished I think fifth twice in two years. And I always felt to myself that even if I couldn't somehow break into the team, I would leave Spurs a better player, w- working with the likes of, obviously, Berbatov, Robbie Keane, Ledley King, um, Didier Sakura, Jermaine Genius. And obviously, there was a real English factor there as well. A few, Obviously, I'd known a few of these guys from the international scene as well. So I just felt like going there, I was going to leave there, only becoming a better player. So if it didn't work out for me, and then obviously, they go and sign like Modric, Bale, so working with these guys every day, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a dream. Yeah, Modric's awesome. Obviously, Bale, like legend, right? Um, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, transfer deadline day fan, and you you spoke about obviously like moving on and stuff, and uh, uh, obviously on on Talk Sport, you spoke about your move from uh, Tottenham to uh, Sunderland in July, straight August of two thousand and nine. Can you tell us about? that situation and how, how weird that was. You was like sitting on the plane going to China and then, you know what I mean? It's like, how does, how does I've spoke to quite a few of my, my mates that have either played semi-professional or professional football and they talk about the whole process of like uh, going from one club to another, but sitting on a plane, like just like, I don't know what you're doing, re- reading a book or just kind of just getting ready for your pre-season. All of a sudden it's like, Darren, don't get too comfortable, mate. You're out of here. How was that? Why did that come around? Do you know what? It's, it's, it's kind of... The, and I'll, I'll go from the very start. So, obviously, I, f- I finished that season as Spurs top goal scorer, but kind of the relationship between me and Harry had kind of gone. So, I knew that he wanted to bring Peter Crouch in, which is fair enough. Robbie Keane had come back. The foe was there. I was ready to move on. I'd already spoke to Steve Bruce. I wanted to go to Sunderland. So, all day now, we know that obviously we're going to China. The flight is in the evening. We know, we know what's going on. So my agent's on the phone to Harry, we're on the phone to Daniel Levy. The deal's getting done. There's no point me getting on this plane going to China because if something does happen, how am I ever going to get back? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get back, right? So Harry read up saying to, to, saying to my agent, well, he, if, he's, if the deal doesn't get done, he's coming. Um, I don't really care. And, and basically, it's, it's really an awkward situation. So we, I get to the airport and I say to Harry, Harry, why am I coming to China? And he's like, I don't know anything. Like Harry played the kind of, I don't know anything. Like, I, I don't really know what's going on. Like, when I know that he knows full well what's going on, right? So, I'm on the phone to Daniel Levy. No, nothing's been done yet. So now, we've boarded the plane, and obviously I've told the boys what's going on. So I'm sitting with Aaron Lennon, Jermaine Genus, Tom Holliston, and a couple others. And um, a couple others. And they're winding me up like crazy. Like, honestly, on my case all the time. <laughs> so they, they shut the door, and I'm thinking, well, great. Anyway, I... I my phone rings, like my phone goes and Neil's like, right, the deal's been done. You have to get off the plane. I'm like, what? The chief executive walks from the back of the plane and goes, oh, Darren, by the way, um, the deal's been done now. Um, you don't have to come to China. Get off the plane. So the poor air hostess has now got her open back the door 
to, to obviously to let me back off. Um, they're like, oh, do you mind? Do you mind if we we go and we send the bag back? I was like, no, 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 I need my bag now. So I have to, obviously they have to get my bag off. I'm walking back through the terminal. There's obviously reporters at the at the airport that are going over to China to kind of cover the tournament. They're like, Darren, what's going on? I'm like, oh no, the deal's done. I'm going. To, I'm going to Sunderland. So obviously there's there's no transport. I have to get a taxi back from the airport to my house. So I'm thinking, right. So I'm on the phone to Major. When are we going up there? He's like, oh, not yet. I think there's one or two details. So I'm thinking, oh, that's all right. Like one or two days. I promise you, the deal didn't get done with Sunderland until they got back. <laughs> so, I, so I sat in my house for 10 days, couldn't train, couldn't travel up there, doing absolutely nothing. because, And then the deal didn't come back until they'd got back. So obviously that's when I sent the tweet out, obviously the tweet yeah. where I said what I said. Because I've been sitting around there for 10 days doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. And I was going to say, your head, must, yeah, your head must have just gone. Yeah, and that's why I said it, because my head had gone, because I was like, well, why Like, why is it taking so long? And I, mm. I think it was all over about, mm. I, I think it was one little fine detail in the contract that Daniel Levy wanted that Sunderland wouldn't agree to. And to the point, they got back and Daniel Levy was like, you know what, we'll just do the do anyway. Mm. And then even when, even when I got up there, I had to sit in a hotel for a further four days before I could train with the team, because there was another point. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> honestly honestly it's, it's crazy so we only see like we only see the mm. the, the small bit of it honestly the players so go for it don't they the players go for it that's mental so frustrating um, but yeah that's just crazy before before we move on from Spurs um, obviously you've said a little bit about the club at the moment but like and you said about play, the players that you kind of played with but like how I know we're going to go on to it but like how good was Gareth Bale at, at the time when when you were there do you know what? So I played with Gareth for two years and I, I promise you, he was really struggling in them first two mm. years. I mean, as Richard will tell you, he, every time he played, they never won. That, that was that horrible stat that was going around. But we always saw in training that there was something there. Like mm. he, he had this and that where he'd get the ball, he'd run with it and you'd know that he was going to push it down the line and cross it in and you'd go, well, I'll kind of show him down the line knowing that he's going to do that. But he had that much pace and power that he'd still get there mm. and get the cross so he'd always do one or two things where he'd go, oof, okay, he's decent. But when I left, it's only obviously he turned to the Gareth Bell, but we're, we all know. But the one player who was there when everyone went, whoa, was Luka Modric. Mm. Like I, I always say, yeah. down, he's the best player I ever played with at club level. Like his very first training session, I remember he, he trained and afterwards all the boys looked at each other and went, oh my goodness, like what have we got here? Because we knew that it was only going to be, and it's no disrespect to Tottenham, but we knew that it was only a stepping stone for him to get to mm. one of the biggest clubs in the world because he was just on a different planet to everybody else. Has that yeah, ever happened to you class. in any other club where everyone's kind of looked at each other and gone, "Oh my gosh"? Not, not, not to that, not to that level. Yeah. When, when Darren stepped in, when Darren stepped in, that's I what was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a given. And that I, was a given. Yeah, and obviously, obviously, like, Gareth's come back to Spurs now. Is that is that some something that you always you you kind of went actually that's not really for me or that opportunity mm. didn't arise, um, and w- would you say would you say for for Gareth that's a good thing coming back to Spurs? Uh, I mean, for me personally, that that was never going to happen. I think I think the relationship between me and the club, even though I'm, I'm still really friendly with that, a lot of the press officers and the people, the infrastructure of the club, I'm really close to still. But in terms of the chairman, the way I left, and the kind of relationship between me and the supporters, me and obviously the manager, it, it just wasn't an option for me to go back there. 
But I think for Gareth, it was the perfect landing spot. Obviously, the supporters loved him. He was absolutely sensational before he left there. That um, season, that season before, wow. But, but not even that one season. People forget about the season where, the Inter Milan season Inter where he scores Milan, the hat-trick. Yeah. <laughs> where he, 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 he won the PFA player that year as well. So I think for Gareth, he after the, what had happened at Madrid and how people, the Madrid fans had switched on him, the manager, the owner, and he was very much on his own out there. He needed to come back to an environment where it was absolutely the love, the kingpin. And I think Spurs, for me, was the absolute perfect landing spot for him. I wouldn't have seen him go to United, City, anywhere else. It had to be Spurs. Mm. Do you reckon you're better than him at golf? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't play golf, but I've heard yeah. that he is, he is supposed to yeah. be outrageous. It's meant to be, isn't meant to be nearly a professional, isn't it? It's meant to be awesome. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so, moving on to Sunderland, the northeast. What what is that? What's that like? What's that experience like? You know, they say the fans. It's like a religion that, that football. So, what was the experience for you playing in Sunderland? Do you know, when when I left Spurs, um, obviously I've been at Charlton for two years, been at Spurs for two years, uh, and I'm, I'm from London. So when I left Spurs, I was so kind of determined to do well the following season and show everybody mm. about how good I actually was that the northeast is the absolute perfect landing spot for me. No, dis- no no, distractions, no London lifestyle, no, obviously the shops. It was one of them where when you play up there, it's you you live, you eat, you breathe football. Everywhere you go, people want to talk about football. So when I got up there, the transition for me was so easy um, because as I said, you're in a footballing environment and there's no distractions. You go to training, you go home. And so many of the other players were in a similar situation to me in terms of they weren't from there. The only one who was kind of from there I think at the time was obviously Jordan Henderson. Jordan Henderson, yeah. And I think Jack Colback was another one as well who was mm-hmm. playing there at the time, who's from there. So for me, it was a perfect landing spot. And my relationship between them, the Sunderland fans and myself, was absolutely sensational. Like, they're probably the best fans I've ever played in front of. I mean, I, it soured a little bit when I left. But mm-hmm. in terms of when mm-hmm. I was there, oh, I mean, what an actual... Um, what an absolute superb place to play your football. I was talking to, to Steph, actually, Steph Horton, and um, I said, yeah. oh, I'm going to be speaking to Darren Bentley. She, she was like, oh, my God, the team. Like, and she was just reeling off, like, every single, like, Sunderland player. Like, um, So you were you were kind of loved there, and it sounds like the love of Sunderland is, is just crazy up there. Do you know what it is? And even my very first game that like, I played, I played one preseason game uh, for the Spurs that was done against Hearts. I scored in that one. And then the next game was away at Bolton on my debut in the Premier League. And we won one nil when I scored a header. And obviously they, they, they carried a lot of fans. Um, mm. They carried a lot of fans to the Bolton. So mm. I kind of felt it a little bit, but I never experienced anything else. When I first walked out, that very first game on the Tuesday night or Wednesday night against Chelsea at home, I, obviously I got there early with the team, went inside, was getting myself ready. The roar when I walked out, and I'm not talking about as in a team, mm-hmm. for myself personally, I, walked, I ran, jogged out, and this it was a, it, a place that kind of erupted. The fans started singing this song, and it gave me the biggest kind of lift that I've ever felt in my... I mean, the Charlton fans were brilliant with me, but this song that they were roaring singing when I walked out was like, whoa. Like saying, I mean, it gives me... I've got goosebumps now when, I, when I'm thinking about it, because... It was something I was like, wow. Like, and obviously I scored in that game as well. Mm. We lost 3-1, but I scored in that game. It was just like something I've never, ever experienced. It was loud. Every time I went near the sides for, to get the ball for a throw or I had a shot of goal. Honestly, it was 
the best kind of feeling for myself personally I've probably ever experienced in my life. I was going to say, was that the best you've ever kind of experienced? Because for, for me, I, it's really hard to explain, isn't it? Like walking out yeah. to a crowd that's just like wants the team, wants you to do well. And just every time anyone goes near the ball, it's you're attacking, just like the flood and the noise is just insane. It's absolutely insane. And, and we, we beat so many teams then that when I was up there, like we beat Manchester City at home, we beat Arsenal at home, we yeah. beat Liverpool, we got results against uh, Arsenal. We, we beat a lot of big, big teams yeah. there because of what you just said there. Mm. The first tackle that flew in, the roof came off of the Sunday yeah. Stadium of Light. We had a shot at goal. Like, even things like people blocking shots. Honestly, I'm sure away teams used to come and think, what is this atmosphere about? Because it was so loud in there. And when you used to score a goal, it used to take us to another level. I mean, I really, really enjoyed my time there. And the supporters were absolutely brilliant. And what's it, what's it like actually winning um, one of those derbies, like Sunderland-Newcastle? It's like when you talk about Arsenal Spurs, the Manchester derby, Sunderland-Newcastle. I've got, I've got friends that live in the Newcastle area that support Newcastle. And they say the one game they want to win is that game. And because they all work together, they all work together in the yeah. workplace. So it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it, apparently? Well, do you know what? I've, I haven't got very good memories of the derbies because I only played in two. Um, and because the first season they were in the championship and the, the two that I played in, the first one, we got absolutely pumped 5-1. At St. James's Park. And the second one, we drew one all. Um, and it was awful because, as you said there, it means that much to the supporters. They all work together. They all know each other, relatives of different clubs. Mm. When we when we lost that 5-1, the atmosphere around Sunderland, the stadium, I mean, I remember, I'll never forget, it was so subdued this, the next game after we lost 5-1 because that's the one game. They, they don't really care if you get beat by United or whoever, but you just don't lose that game. And the fact that we absolutely got destroyed in that game, yeah. it, it pretty much ruined the, the, the next few weeks for some of them supporters. You made the move then, obviously, to Villa, an, a nice Midland club, big club, and then obviously you played Sunderland. You got a bit of a reception then, didn't you, mate? Yeah. Every time you touch the ball, you got booed. What's I'm, I've, I've played? I've played um, <clears throat> an international sport. I played ice sledge hockey, and I went to to Italy, and we were we were pummeling them three or four nil. And every time I had the puck, I got booed. And that actually like drove me on to like play better. So I don't know how how did that how did how did you take that as obviously being one of them players that really connected with the club. It was it, you know it was it was really difficult my very first game back there because even so much obviously we played it was kind of strange because in the December I switched on the Christmas lights in Sunderland mm-hmm. and then you're talking about the very the, ne- the very next month yeah. I leave so it was it was one of them where we we beat Villa one nil. A couple of weeks before I signed for Villa, we beat him one new at uh, Villa Park, and everything was good. And obviously, I left. I went to Villa, and when I went back there for the first time, I remember I, I wasn't quite sure how bad it was going to be, but I, I knew how bad it was pretty quickly when I got off the coach, and there was thousands of people outside where the players walk in, booing for fun. There were banners everywhere, so I knew it was bad for men. So when I went out for the warm up, there were boo- every time in the I was getting booed. Standing there at the side when you're about to start and you've got to walk and shake hands, there were banners everywhere. 
and it, put, it and it, and it really affected me. To be fair, I couldn't mm. play my natural game. I missed a big chance. It was saved, and it wasn't a nice environment to be in. If, if, if I'm honest, it was a real, real, real tough because I'd, I'd had so such a good relationship with these supporters that for it to turn as badly as it did, it was it wasn't nice at all. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, how how can you play the game that you love to the potential that you have when there's so many distractions? Just, it was so. It was honestly, yeah. it was so tough. It was it was an environment, and obviously you've played at certain grounds where you're going to get booed. Yeah. But but the the, the way that the Sunderland mm. fans reacted towards me, like I, I was getting booed more than Newcastle players. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? So that tells you in itself, yeah. Obviously, how much it hurt them. That's just crazy. Yeah. On on a nicer note, you scored your hundredth Premier League goal. Uh, <laughs> can can, <laughs> can you remember who it was against and what type of goal it was? Yeah, I mean, I remember saying it was against QPR for Villa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember saying to Alan Hutton, because I was on 99, um, I'd scored the week before against Wolves and I thought I was going to get it then. So I said to Hutton, so I was chatting to Hutton in the, in the, in the change room and I said to him, do you know what? I know what's going to happen today. We're going to be losing and I'll score the 100. So I can't even celebrate. And what happens? We go 2-0 down really early. <laughs> so I, I remember the ball gets down the right. I, I think it's Nader Manoa cuts the ball back to me. Not Nader, was it Nader? No, it was Alan Hutton cut the ball back to me. And I, I got in front of Nadim and, and I, I hit the ball in the net. And that was the hundredth. But because we were 2-0 down, it was just before half time. I had to run off, go and get the ball out of the net and trot back yeah. to the, the halfway line. And uh, listen, it was still a fantastic feeling for myself, mm. but I had a t-shirt underneath everything ready to go. You should have oh, worn no. it the week after when you scored again and just 101. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Recycled it. Do, yeah, do you still get the same? Do you still get the same kind of buzz when you know, obviously, when you when you're playing for all these top teams, England? Do you still get the same kind of buzz when you're doing your punditry as well? Is that is that have you replaced that with? You'll ne- you'll never you'll never ever get the same feeling of scoring a goal. Not nothing beats that. Absolutely, and I'm talking about. I used to get that buzz in training, uh, whatever it was. Every time that ball went in the net, it was like yes, that, that you get that, that satisfaction. Even in five sides. Yeah, goal. But mm-hmm. so nothing will ever beat that. But in terms of what I'm doing now, yeah, I still love it. It still means loads to me. I still get excited to go and talk about football, go and watch football. So I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones to still be in involved in it, if that makes sense. And and as I said, I still I, I love it. I think for me, playing football is the best job in the world. Like I, I, and, that and, is the absolute best. And do you, do you prepare um, to the same extent you would when you were playing as well? Do you think that's yeah, for you? you is that to. really important for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. For me, you have to do your prep because we're in in an in age where we, we there's so much social media. You know full well. You say it's one thing that's mm-hmm. not quite correct, and you'll have a hundred people jumping your game. Hold on, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So that's so that's so important doing your prep. Uh, have you done that yet? Oh yeah, a few times. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, a few times. You you know what it's like playing for England. It's it's an absolute kind of dream. What what was the experience like for you? Like being on camp, away from the team, international duty. Like who was your roommate? And like what's like how do you look back on kind of that that kind of time playing for England? Um, I mean, listen, it's it's ultimately as you all know. There's no better feeling ever than representing your country. I mean, if anything, to at the very start when I was kind of I was in a lot of the squads, but didn't get onto the pitch. It was just an experience. Like you'd go to, you, I'd go to the camps, but because you know you're not going to play, it's a little bit like, oh, all right, mm. 10 days. 
And this is before St George's Park was being built. So this is where yeah. we used to stay at, in Watford at the Grove. Grove, yeah. Yeah, so it was a little bit like, oh, okay, I'm not going to play, but you'd still go. But as mm. towards the end of the Capella, when I started to play, started to score, started to feel part of it, the absolute best experiences of your life. And I always used to say to youngsters now, when you're in it, don't take it for granted because when you're, the, the phone's no longer ringing and you're not getting mm. the call up, it's awful because you'll, you'll look at it, you'll see that them all laughing and joking and obviously watching them play, represent their country. You just want to be back part of it. You want to be back involved in it. So when it's gone, you really do miss it. But listen, there are days that I look back at. I absolutely love my time with England. Do I feel I should have had more caps? Absolutely. Um, but it's just one of them things that obviously for me, it didn't happen. Yeah, and you had that opportunity, which was awesome. And you, and you played under some some different styles of managers, obviously, at England with, with uh, Capello and, and Hodgson. What was your relationship like with uh, those guys? Well, with Sven, it was all right. He gave me my debut. That was not so bad. Then I had Steve McLaren again. Weren't so bad. But mine and Capello's relationship kind of flipped because at first he wasn't really playing me. Playing me. And even after I scored, I think it was 25 for Sunderland that first season, he didn't bring me to the World Cup. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and they didn't do well in 2010. It wasn't a very good World Cup. So when he got back, he kind of like the very first squad, he kind of had a meeting with me and he basically said, listen, I've made a mistake. I should have taken you to the last World Cup. But from now, you're going to be my centre forward. So make sure every time you come to England, prepare to play. And it was kind of what I wanted to hear because I scored, I think, four internationals in a row. Like, I felt like mm-hmm. I was really part of it. Mm-hmm. Then, then I get the injury and he loses his job. And then after that, I never got to play again after that. So it was. It was always a good after that World Cup 2010. Mine and Capello's relationship was was really really good after that. Did did Roy Hodgson kind of speak to you about not them coming back into the squad? <laughs> he did it because obviously I had the injury and he, he called me phone up and said, "Listen, I know how integral you've been in part of this squad and getting to qualify for the, the 2012 Euro." He goes, "We'll get yourself back fit, and um, hopefully you'll be back in the squad. I'll, I'll mm. have a look and we'll get you back in the squad." Uh, for whatever reason, even when I was playing well the following season. It just never happened again for whatever reason. I know we had the youngsters coming up, like Welbeck was coming up and I think Sturridge was coming and people like that. Rooney was still there as well. So it was just one of those things where I, I could never quite get myself back into the squad. So it was, mm. it was disappointing. But as I said, I still look back at my time with England mm. with fond memories. I'm a striker, obviously. Um, I'd love to know like, who's, who's the best kind of centre-back or player you've ever kind of played against. Um, and I know you've said before that you love kind of watching a lot of analysis. Um, but did you do analysis on who you're about to face in terms of like centre-halves, goalies? Because Rich knows I do a lot kind of away from the game, kind of really analyse who I'm going to kind of face their traits, that type of thing. So interested to see kind of what, what you did. Yeah, I did a little bit. Like, you, you get the video clips. Um, mm. certainly, do you know what it was for me? It was always like, certainly against the the, so the the lesser teams, I'd really do my kind of homework um, on where their weaknesses are, where I'm going to get a bit of joy, mm. What maybe what centre-back was weaker out of the two, which one do I play on? But with the top teams, because they're on TV all the time and you're watching them 24-7, you're like, okay, well, I know full well that I might not get many opportunities. Mm. So when this opportunity comes, I need to be ready for it. I need to be able to take it, which is why I think my record against the so-called bigger six was is is, is very, very good. But in terms of the best players to play against, I mean, centre-back in Premier League terms, Rio Ferdinand had absolutely everything. I mean, he was so... Uh, he, could, he could play on the ball. He was quick. He was strong. He could read the game. And obviously him and Vidic complemented each other really, really well. So they were always a really, really tough pair to kind of get any kind of joy from um but in terms of kind of a global scale 
Sergio Ramos was so hard. Him and Thiago Silva. Oh my goodness. There's nothing them two guys couldn't do. They were, I mean, Sergio Ramos was aggressive. He's strong. A little bit naughty as well in terms of one or two of his tackles. And Thiago Silva had the lot. Quick, strong, powerful, good in the air, could play. So I think they'd probably be the best ones I come up against. Still doing it as well, aren't they? Still doing it. Yeah. Still going, thing. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, on this part, podcast, we, we love hearing from like high-performing athletes and kind of how they achieve what they have in their careers, um, respective sports, um, in particular, kind of hearing about kind of like the support network or what made them who they are, um, whether that is nutrition, recovery, who they surround themselves with. So what would you say were like the main factors of what helped you become kind of the player that, that was or who you were really? But you know what? I think you said it a little bit there. I think the support bubble is more important than anything now. Mm. And, the, and the people that you've got around you. Now, I've had the same friends that I've had since I was as a kid. I'm not, not, not integrated hardly anyone new into my circle. Mm. And when I think about that, that is so important because there was times where I'd be out of all my friends on a Friday night and then say to me, right, D, it's eight, eight o'clock. Right, you've got to go home. Like oh, you've wow. got to go home. You've got a game tomorrow. Like you should. Like you not go up. Go home. They're like we'll we'll come with you, but you're going home. So that, that's why I've had the same. Mm. And that went the whole way through. Do you know what I mean? Even when I got up to 24, 25, they might be around my house watching a film Friday night, and they'd be like, "Right, D. Like obviously you got a game tomorrow. A big game tomorrow. So like, well, not even a big game tomorrow. They're like D, you got a game tomorrow. Yeah. Like you go up. You go up. We'll tidy up downstairs. So that was always important. Mm. I, my mum and dad played a big part as well, taking me to football, having conversations, making sure I ate the right stuff. So I think more than anything, yeah, nutrition's important. Um, obviously, keeping yourself fit's important. But there's nothing bigger than having that same support circle around you and people that are on the same wavelength as you. Mm. Even when I'm, I've said I've gone out before on a Thursday and people might be having drinks at a restaurant. We might be at a restaurant. And my friends are like, well, you're not having a drink. Even I didn't drink anyway. They'd be like... Well, you're not you're not gonna have a drink, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, like you know better than that. And even to the point I might be like, do you know what? I might have a couple chips with uh my meal. One or two of my friends would be like, listen, don't let me phone your dad and tell him that. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It was it was it, it was that yeah. t- much of a tight knit yeah. circle that that really helped and form me into the person that I was. And I think it's important, isn't it, to have that trust and honesty with with around your friends and um and not just in in the times when you need to have those those um, conversations, but also like myself and Ellen, um, I've had lots of criticism in our careers, positive and negative criticism, and obviously with mental health being like key to um, sport at the moment, and really looking at how how we can support young people's mental health moving forwards. <laughs> you've obviously had uh, situations within your career that managers have maybe said things that have not, not been beneficial to you. And I, I remember, obviously, being a Spurs fan, the, the Harry Redknapp thing, when, when you, you had a miss yeah. and he said, my missus could score that, that, um, that chance. And at the time, a lot of people saw that as very comical. But I saw mm. that as something that would, that would, that's not supporting the team, that's not supporting yourself as a player. And how mm. is that benefiting uh, you in your progression into, into being the leading striker for the team. Yeah, do you know what? Again, if it wasn't for my kind of support circle around me, that could have been a lot harder than it was. Do you know what yeah, I mean? If I'd have been on my yeah. own, it could have been, it, that could have maybe affected me maybe a lot more mm. than it actually did because yeah. I pretty much kind of put it to bed, played the following week, I think, 
uh, scored a couple against Bolton. Um, so I, I kind of pull it to bed quite quickly. But mm. when I got back home, obviously after he said it, after the game, obviously my friends were there. Obviously my dad, my, my dad, I was obviously, my, my head had gone. I was I was annoyed yeah. at the comment. I thought, why, why I just did this? But it was it took one or two of my friends to say, well, listen, don't worry about it. Forget about it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect you. Do you know what I mean? Don't worry about it. Just get your head down. Don't listen to the noise. Obviously, and, and that really helped. When they just said, listen, forget about it. Move on. Make sure you show him next week. That's kind of made me go, okay, you're probably right. So I kind of put it to bed relatively quickly. But as I said, if I didn't have good people around me, that might have festered in my head somewhere. And who knows, the next chance might have come, missed it, and it might have been like, oh, no, like, what am I going to do now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> and like you say, it just goes back to who you're surrounding yourself with and, and mm. them basically being on the same page as you of wanting to support you is, is the main thing. Exactly. And that, that, that is one of the most important things. And the, the sad thing is you see so many young kids. I mean, you talk to people like you talk about, I mean, the myth is someone like a Ravel Morrison. People talk about he's got all the natural ability in the world, like could have been the best surrounded himself. Not, not even so much with the wrong people. That's probably the wrong t- terminology. But the people that he's surrounded himself with didn't necessarily help him in terms of getting him where he should have got to. And I think he probably looks back at that and goes, well, that's probably a little bit of a regret. And fortunately for myself, I had the right people around me, which is why I could get to the, the level that I did. And we always finish on legacy within the podcast as well. What what would you like to be remembered uh, by and who? And uh, and what would you, is it is it how you play or is it you as a character? Um, now listen, I, I'm under no illusion that one, probably the biggest thing people are probably going to remember me about is the beach ball. Like, because, yeah. the, because that's the one goal anybody wants to talk about. They always say to me, oh, you scored the goal with a beach ball. So that is the one thing that obviously, unfortunately, everybody's going to remember. But in terms of the way I played, I, I think people will always say, when they say obviously about oh, Darren Bennett, they'll always say, oh, natural goal scorer, always scored a lot of goals. And that's how I always wanted it to be. I always wanted to score goals. I always wanted to score more goals than anyone else. And hopefully that's how people remember me by mm. Right, the last bit of our podcast, we always do 10 questions. Now, I didn't make these questions up, Rich did. Um, they're a bit different. I don't know if you've heard <laughs> yeah, them before. Just like me. But just, but just a bit fun, quick fire, just to, to end the podcast, if you're right to, to answer them. Oh, oh, good. Go on, Rich, you go. Uh, the first one, easy, track or ball? Ball. It's a baller. It's a baller. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the amount the of people we've had on this podcast that have literally said track. Oh, yeah, no. I, could cry. I could cry. Thank you for being yeah, on this podcast just for that answer. <laughs> okay, what's your uh, greatest accomplishment so far in life? Becoming a father. N- nothing big. Nothing better than than becoming a dad and, and trying to raise your kids in the right way and and watching them grow and develop. I'd like to think I'm doing a very good job. So yeah, definitely my kids. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I've got two little ones myself, and I, I know how important it is to. To show them the right path, mate. So, so well done on that. The third question is: uh, Do you believe in ghosts? Yes, I do. Wow! Do you? <laughs> Go on, then. <laughs> yeah. Do you know why? I, I just think that there's so much weird stuff that goes on. I think, yeah, I think I probably do. Do you know what I mean maybe not so much the ones where I see them go across the landing with no feet? <laughs> <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably more. Some, some, some will move or a door open. Mm. I think. Hmm. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I do. Okay. okay cool. Okay, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Oh, the biggest risk. Oh, that is a good question, that. The biggest <laughs> risk. 
Oh my goodness, what a, what a question that is. I can't even think. <laughs> the biggest risk. You've obviously took a lot, yeah? I took a fair few of that. <laughs> uh, risk, risk. I mean, I mean, listen, probably the biggest one I'd say risk maybe was I was nearly late for a game and I had a flat tyre and I had to go the whole way on a flat tyre. And I'm talking about the rim was touching the floor. But because I... I so, so anything could have happened, but because obviously I didn't want to be late, I had to just go and obviously the damage I did to the car was was bad. But what could I do? Light I had to get off, to the right. game. Fair play. Light off. Yeah. You didn't get fined then, no? No, I got there on time, but my car was... Oh. <laughs> next question can you sing no no but if you no. were if you're doing karaoke what would you be a go-to song so when you sign for a new club and you have to do that the, the mm. song initiation uh, yeah. my mine would be probably luther vandross never too much oh okay that's a great okay. one yeah nice. yeah what was yours else what was yours oh, Man City. <sighs> mine's horrendous one direction what makes you beautiful? <laughs> yeah. It's bad. Can you, can you sing? Can you sing, Ellen? No, absolutely not. No, it's, it's, it's probably one of the scariest things doing an initiation. Oh, I think it's horrendous. Horrible. Horrible. Oh, yeah, it's horrendous. Okay, when are you at your happiest? I mean, I was always at my happiest scoring goals. As I said, when you score goals, happiest. But I'm probably at my happiest now when. I'm obviously in and amongst the family. When I'm with the family, I'm, I'm probably at my most happiest. But there's something really, I mean, I've got twins that are um, nearly three. And I think there's nothing better than when I walk in, when I've been working, come in and they say, hi, daddy. Aww. That there, that that feeling there is, so that yeah. I always get a re- yeah. really, really happy when I hear that. What's the silliest thing you've got upset by? The silliest thing I've got upset by is probably a, when I was playing, a, do you know what I mean? A pundit saying something about me. Like, I, I don't know why, and I think to myself, why am I letting them upset yeah. me for? But I'll, I'll probably say upset is probably the wrong word. But angry is probably mm. more. But I'm thinking to myself, why am I allowing them? And not even so much pundits, maybe. Even, you know, social media, you read something, you yeah. think, why am I allowing this person who I've never met to dictate to how I'm feeling? So probably that. Okay. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'd like to see myself still doing what I'm doing. Maybe progressing a little bit better in the media, maybe... Obviously, a bigger role. Even I've got a big role at Talksport, an even bigger role at Talksport. Maybe Sky, one or two, maybe other networks. Yeah, I'd like to say probably that in the next ten years. That's my goal, anyway. And last question from me: um, How do your friends describe you? I'd like to say my friends would would describe me as supportive, um, kind, and would probably do anything for anyone. Anyone, well, especially my circle. They know full well mm. if there's a problem or an issue. I will go out my way to try and sort it. Do you know what I mean? And that and that could be anything. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That could be any kind of walk of life. If they're struggling to do something, I will go out of my way to make sure that I will do what I can to sort it. And the final question is, what's your greatest fear? My greatest fear would be, oh, greatest fear. It's got to be probably losing a loved one. That's, that's mm. probably, I know it's quite an obvious one, but my biggest fear is, like I'm still lucky enough, fortunate enough, I've still got both my parents um, so I think someone in, who's really close to me yeah. passing away I think that is one day I'm not looking forward to at all mm. and touch wood it doesn't happen for a while yeah touch wood yeah no thanks for your time Darren you've been an excellent guest and very insightful for everybody that's listening and uh, watching the podcast so thank you for your time we, myself and Ellen are very grateful for that cheers yeah thank thanks you, for having man. me on thank you I've really on really enjoyed it well not only 
as a Spurs fan, but also as a big football fan. That was really insightful. He's got some some messages in there for everybody around that that group of people that you yeah. surround yourself. Surround yourself with people that you, that you trust, are honest, and give you that right information. And if you haven't, it's time to make a change. Oh, definitely. Um, I think it was so important for him to kind of say that and, and for, for kind of what he has in, in the game as well. Um, and I love the fact that his friends, if he was out of them, look like, hey, eight o'clock, you got a game, you know, go home. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that was, was a really, really great message. And also for me, kind of the takeaway as well was um, like the preparation, um, doing something that's realistic for what you do. Um, and making it, or well, especially for a striker, game realistic. But going out of your way um, to do the extras, to go the extra mile, I think was was a really important message as well. And he's wanting now to give back to the sport that he loves and has given him, him so many opportunities. And obviously he wants to talk about those times that have been quite tough. And when he's had that criticism, he's not shied away from it. He's He's faced it head on and try to learn about himself and his team through that adversity. So great, another great podcast, very insightful. I hope everybody on the podcast gets something from it. And don't forget, subscribe, listen to our back catalogue. And when are you playing next, Els? On Wednesday. Wednesday. <laughs> Who have you got Wednesday? We've got Bristol. So, yeah, should be a good game. Um, but, yeah, no, exactly the same as Rich. Thank you so much for all your support. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, we're also on where you normally find your podcasts or on Twitter at Track and Ball uh, Pod. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon for another episode. Cross comes in. White with the header. And here comes Whitehead. It's gold for Great Britain. 